All right, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, few things have caused kind of division and separation in the church over the centuries like wine. Isn't that true? From the 14th century to the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't give the cup of the Lord's table to the common people. They kept it for the priesthood. It started with good intentions. It ended with doctrinal error. In the 19th century, a Methodist dentist named Thomas Bramwell Welch invented a pasteurization process that, well, changed communion from there on out with Welch's grape juice. But despite how you feel about wine or grape juice or whatever, despite how you feel about wine, despite whether or not it's wise for you to drink it, it's not wise for all of us to drink wine. One thing remains true no matter what. Wine has been a symbol for a long time. A big symbol that holds a lot of meaning, but primarily, it's been a symbol of joy. Usually, when the Bible talks about wine, it's talking about joy. Not just the Bible. You've got Greek and Roman mythology of Bacchus and Dionysius and all these things. Basically, worldwide, where there's wine, it means joy. And I don't mean, when I say joy, please don't hear the sort of like thin, flimsy, crinkly happiness that you get at a movie theater when they put the right amount of butter on your popcorn. That's not, that is great, but that's not joy. <laughs> that's not joy. That's just fun. It's, it's nice. It's a good thing. I'm talking about true, like gritty, robust, deep joy, costly joy, the kind that does not come cheap. That's what wine is for. I think that's why God invented it. 
I think the grape itself gestures toward this uh, on the outside of a grape. I learned this from Robert Farrar Capone. The outside of the grape is covered in wild yeast. It just picks up these yeast strands by existing. The inside of the grape, yeah, Eric's paying attention. I like this. It's like, talk fermentation, I'm there. The inside of the grape has sugars. What do you get when you mix yeast and sugars? It's fermentation. Creates alcohol. That's how grapes become wine, except between the sugars and the yeast is a thick skin. So never the twain shall meet unless the grape is crushed. That's what we're talking about. The grape has to be crushed. So where we're going with that today is that Jesus offers us the better wine of the new covenant, the wine of joy, but it only comes to you through his suffering. He has to be crushed. So three, three headings. Here's the roadmap. An age of abundance. Number two, taste and see. Number three, a sip of sorrow. Let me just ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you for being a speaking God, a communicating God. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. So we ask now that you will open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, that you would incline our hearts to our testimonies, and that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. We don't trust in my word. We trust in you to transform and to save and to create and to speak into existence the things that are not. So we're listening. Amen. Amen. Well, in verse um, 11, John says that through this first of his signs, and there's seven signs in John, by the way, the, the book is organized around seven important signposts that point to the glory of Jesus. In this first one, it was the first time that Jesus, he says, manifested his glory. In other words, Jesus has to do something, do a sign in the world because he's not self-evidently glorious. You can't just look at him walking down the street and go, oh, of course, he's glorious. The Spirit revealed that to John the baptizer. But here's how the Spirit reveals it to us, is through these signs. So the first of these signs manifests his glory. And to understand then what aspects of his glory are made manifest and how it's made manifest, we're going to talk about covenant. So that's our starting place, is the idea of covenant. Covenant is the the primary way the Bible teaches us that God relates to humanity in a structured and formal but loving way. And I think this definition eventually trickled down from Keller. A covenant is more binding than an ordinary relationship, but it's more intimate and loving than an ordinary contract. Something like marriage, right? The covenant of marriage. It's more than just dating. It's more than just friendship because of its binding nature but it's more intimate and it's more loving than a normal contract. It's a beautiful blend of law and love. And the Bible is full of covenants as ways that God relates to his people. There's a lot of covenants in the Bible, 
the obvious ones, you get Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. There's some smaller ones in there that we can talk about another time. But generally, the Bible, there's two big ones, and they call them the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, where it's referring to the Mosaic Covenant, the, the covenant God made through Moses with the people on Sinai, and the New Covenant is with Christ. So those are the categories we're going to talk about for a few minutes. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant, both are from God. They're both a gift. So it's not like the Old Covenant's bad, the New Covenant's good. They're both gifts. But it's important to understand that God's intention for the Old Covenant, right, was for it to be a shadow of something more substantial. It was never meant to be a thing on itself forever. It was meant to point to and usher in another age. So, for example, in the Old Covenant, when we sinned, we talked about this a few weeks ago, we have to go take something innocent and beautiful from our flock that costs us and costs it and slaughter it. Something has to die for our sins and it costs us. That's a shadow of the substance of the new covenant in which Christ willingly gives himself to die once and for all. And then all the sacrifices cease. And we see this pattern when the new comes, the old runs. The old becomes obsolete. Or, for instance, in the old covenant, when you rub shoulders with sin and death, you get unclean. It doesn't even necessarily mean you've sinned. In fact, it usually doesn't. It's just what happens when you live in this world that is broken by sin. And when you get unclean, you need to get clean before you walk in the presence of God and have fellowship with his people. So God gave them in the old covenant all these ceremonial laws, purification rites to get clean. Some to deal with your conscience and some to deal with just the, pr- the pragmatics of living in a broken and falling fallen world. But in the new covenant, Jesus radically cleanses us from the inside out and it's done. Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And he goes, well, wash all of me, not just my feet. And he goes, you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. You don't need to get re-cleaned with Jesus. His cleansing is powerful the difference between a shadow and a substance. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone, etched in, carved. It was cold. It was lifeless. The law couldn't do anything. It was just a rock against which we dash ourselves. In the New Covenant, we find we have the power to keep that law because it's written on our hearts, not in stone. And God's spirit fills us and helps us to obey. It helps us to want to obey, which is stunning. In other words, God in his wisdom set in place for hundreds and hundreds of years, a covenant that would cause his people to yearn for better days to come. He did it on purpose. He wanted his people to long for a better age. You see this mostly in the prophetic books, which come later in the Old Testament. The first five books, called the Pentateuch, um, 
or the, the Torah, whatever you like, the books of Moses, that's where the, the old covenant gets established. That's how we read about it, God setting up this covenant. But then later, centuries later, as these prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Joel and Isaiah, as they're writing, they're reflecting on centuries of living in that old covenant. And here's what they've realized. The old covenant is powerless to save me. It can teach me, but it's not delivering me. And so they long for a new covenant. That was by design. In the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Paul says, thinking back on the law, the old covenant, he says the law was like a schoolmaster, was like a tutor. The job of a tutor is not to sit down and solve the problems for you. It's to lead you to the answers, isn't it? The point of the old covenant is to lead us to Christ, the substance of the new covenant. It's to lead students to Jesus. All right, why are we talking about covenants? (laughs) Here's why. When the prophets talk about longing for that new and better covenant, they use the symbol of wine. Not just a little wine, loads of it. For instance, the prophet Joel says, and hear the future-oriented longing language. He says, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. I don't even know how to picture that. (laughs) I think that's the point. The prophet Isaiah says, thinking again toward that day, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Because there's so much of it. You don't even have to charge for it anymore. Or the prophet Amos. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. You start to taste the longing that they had. It's part of why we still have the Old Testament, which just means covenant. It's so that we can enter into that longing for a Christ. They wanted a new age to be ushered in an age of abundance, the age of the Messiah, the Christ. And when this long-awaited king turns up on the scene, Israel knew that everything would change and all the shadows would become reality. Think of it this way. The old covenant was a covenant of aromas, good smells, like smelling a delicious, sumptuous feast being prepared in the next room. The new covenant says, come sit down and eat and drink, taste. That takes us back to our text, John chapter 2. Jesus takes these six stone jars used for Jewish purification rites. And he takes that water, which could only clean in a shadowy way, and he turns it to wine. Not a little wine. (laughs) Loads of it. I did the math. I'm not good at math, but I think I got it right. 
I think it's 650 bottles of wine is what Jesus made. (laughs) Can you picture that? It's 135-ish gallons of wine. This was no party trick. It was nothing less than a royal announcement that the age of the Messiah was here. The age of abundance has dawned and all the shadows are fleeing in the presence of the sun's substantialness. So those stone jars used for washing are converted to wine decanters because in the age of the Messiah, he makes us clean once for all. We don't need that anymore. In fact, in a weird backwards way, the way that they would have thought about it was that Jesus defiled the jars by putting something other than ceremonial water in it. And he's okay with that because they don't need them anymore. So Jesus invites us here in this age of abundance to set aside everything that we would do to try and get ourselves clean and to go feast with him instead. Come on. So that scarcity of the Old Testament, the longing, prepares us for the abundance of the new. So when Jesus comes on the scene and does this first royal announcement sign, making the hills flow with wine, he signals, now we have an abundance of mercy, an abundance of forgiveness, an abundance of power to love and obey like never before. So with this one little quiet, humble sign, just the servants knew, he invites us to step out of a world of aromas and sit down at a feast a feast that he has been preparing very specifically for you. A quick question before we move on. Um, I mean, I'm willing to bet that you do not have stone jars for ceremonial washings in your house. It is possible that you do. Um, In my hometown, I mean, Bellingham, I guarantee you they do. Uh, (laughs) But the question is a serious one. What do you rely on to get clean? What do you do with your conscience? If it's not Jesus, I guarantee you, he has an abundance of what you're looking for. And it's better than whatever shadow we cling to. Amen. Number two. Taste and see. Uh, Let's read from verses 9 and 10, because this is the main point of the story. You read these first 12 verses, you go, okay, but what's the point? Because there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. That's the wrong metaphor for this. There's a lot of ways to approach this text. What's the point? Well, here it is. The master of the feast tells you exactly what's amazing about this. He tells us how the glory of Christ is made manifest. Here it is. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. That's the point. 
The best comes last. That's the point. Now, these wedding feasts, I think we need to understand a little bit more about what a wedding in the first century in the Galilean region would be like. First of all, everyone was invited. Uh, It's not a very exclusive invite list. Second of all, it lasted a full week. And wine was expected to be provided from the bridegroom's family for that entire week. So, you can imagine that in this backwater Galilee, there's not a lot of people well off enough to pay for expensive, excellent wine for a thousand people for a week. (laughs) So, what do they do? They serve the good stuff first. The top shelf wine goes in the first glass. And once you've kind of settled into the party and you've relaxed a little bit, they slip in the bottom shelf stuff and you won't even notice. That's how this works. I think it's how it still works. (laughs) But that's what weddings were like then. So when the master of the master of the feast tastes Jesus' wine, he noticed. He wasn't asleep at the wheel. Hold, hold on. This is excellent wine. They're like, maybe there must be some mistake here because you don't know how much this would cost, bridegroom, to give wine this good to this many people for this long. I like to think about what the bridegroom himself, because it says he didn't even know. He must just be like, uh, yeah, no, it's great wine. You're welcome. But Jesus, meanwhile, quietly knows it costs more than you think. That's the point. God served the best wine last. Not the old covenant. That was good wine. But the, the, the new covenant is so excellent, the old pales in comparison to it. It's like the sun and the moon. The moon can be beautiful and bright, but when the sun rises, the moon vanishes because of the sun's brilliance. So why don't we keep old covenant ceremonial laws anymore? Why don't we walk around with tassels on the corners of our robes observing Jewish feast days, etc. Because you don't have to anymore. The shadows have fled in the presence of the sun. You're welcome to if you want to. But it won't get you anything with Jesus. Notice in verse 9, the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine. He tasted it. Wine was provided at a wedding so that all the guests could enter into the very joy of the bridegroom. Remember, wine is a symbol for joy. And it's not a random symbol. It's because it actually kind of takes the edge off life sometimes. And that's why it can be abused so much. And when the guests have enjoyed the feast's wine and the worries and cares of life seem to slip off their shoulders for a moment and they seem at their utter ease like they belong, the bridegroom goes, yeah, that's about a little fraction of how I feel when I look at my bride. That's what the wine's for. It's to help you experience the joy of the bridegroom. And you so... (laughs) You need to taste it. 
How else can you enter into the joy of the bridegroom unless you taste the wine? So Psalm 34, David writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Give him a try. He doesn't say no and speculate that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer wanton hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The wine of the new covenant is not theoretical wine for theoretical sipping. It's the real joy of the bridegroom, and it's meant to be entered into. It's meant to be tasted and experienced. That's why he gave so much good wine. is so everyone there would have a chance to taste his abundance, to taste his, his sweetness, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Think about Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Elijah, all of these saints of the Old Covenant, they had profound glimpses of God's glory, incredible experiences with God. Moses walked up Mount Sinai while it was wreathed in flame and smoke. That's amazing. But you, literally you, can taste the goodness and glory of God in a way they couldn't even dream of in this life. Here's what I mean. Remember what Jesus said about John the baptizer. He says, no, no. He says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But I tell you, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay. Of those born of women, John is greater than Moses. John is greater than Joshua, greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than Elijah. Why? Because of his proximity to the Christ his nearness to Jesus. John had the unique ability with a foot in both covenants to see the man he was prophesying about, to physically draw near to him in a way no one else could before him. That's what made John so great. How come Jesus can say then that you are greater? Because you don't just see Jesus walking by You don't just get together with Jesus at family reunions. He lives in you. In the same way the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the tabernacle and enshrouded the mountain, the Spirit of God encompasses you. Jesus is nearer to you if you're in Christ than you can imagine. So you're greater than Moses greater than Joshua and David and Solomon and Elijah, Ezekiel and All of them, not because of you, but Christ in you. That's amazing. You have a nearness and an immediacy with the living God that surpasses any shadow of the old covenant. So my exhortation for you is this. Do not take that for granted. And do not think that it relies on your emotions to be true. You might feel far from God, but if you've leaned on Christ, he has drawn you into his very heart. Peter says, 
And again, I, I wouldn't say this if it weren't in the Bible. Peter says in 1 Peter that he has made us partakers of the divine nature. That's how close you are to God in Christ. Man. So don't take it for granted. Taste his goodness. Taste it while you pour over scripture day after day. Study it. Our children know God talks to you through the Bible. Don't take it for granted. Taste and see. Taste and see in prayer as you draw near to the heart of heaven. Taste and see as you do those works that he's prepared for you since before earth existed. The things that bring him glory. Taste and see as you confess your sins and receive immediate forgiveness and cleansing on the basis of the perfect and final sacrifice of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking God is far off and disinterested from you. He's ushered in the age of abundance, and he's invited you to sit down with him at his table. So listen, nothing's ordinary for us anymore. There's no more mundane. If Christ is that near to us, then what part of your life isn't holy and sacred? Because he's nearer than we could imagine, and he's given us a taste of heaven. Praise God. Let's go to our third point, our last point, a sip of sorrow. Look back with me at verses three and four, please. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I'm not allowed to talk to my mom like that. Um, <laughs> so there's two things that you should know. First, to address that, and then second, to move on. First, he's not being rude. He is being abrasive. He is distancing himself from his mom. The question is, why? And I think it's because when he begins to usher in the age of abundance, the messianic age, the new covenant, no one gets special treatment. All must come to him as sinners in need of saving, even the one who nursed him. She couldn't come to him for special treatment as mom. She has to come as a disciple. Anyway, the second thing you need to know, putting that aside, is that every time in John's gospel, he talks about his hour. He's talking about the hour of his death. Every time. He's talking about the cross. For instance, fly through. John 7, 20. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. He was untouchable until it was time. Or John 8, 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27. We're approaching the hour. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Finally, his last prayer before the cross, John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
So Jesus's mother comes up to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And he says, it's not my time to die. What does the death of Jesus have to do with wine and a wedding? Everything. Absolutely everything. I don't know if you've ever been uh, single at a big happy wedding. I remember one before I met my lovely wife many years ago. Um, I was there playing guitar for the band and I didn't know anybody. And so the dancing, you know, the music part was over and the dancing was going on and the, the feasting. And I don't know that I ever felt so lonely in my whole life because I was thinking about a wedding day I wasn't sure would ever come. If you can relate to that at all, then you have the tiny sliver of a taste of what Jesus was feeling, except he was thinking about the wedding day he knew would come. To win his bride, this bridegroom would have to suffer horribly. How could he be at a wedding and not be thinking about that? He's read his Bible. He knows what he's there to do. We read it in our call to worship with Ryan this morning. Isaiah 25 is talking about that day again, like the prophets tend to do. That future day, that age that's coming. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. Sounds pretty good so far. Count me in. So picture my dinner plate, got the, the Brussels sprouts with the bacon and the balsamic reduction and the roast beef and the mashed potatoes, the wine, right? There's my dinner plate. What's on God's dinner plate? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. We get the roast beef. He eats death. For us to taste the wine of the new covenant, to sit at the feast of the kingdom of God, the king has to taste death. Think about Psalm 75, verse 8 says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So now we're turning joy on its head, aren't we, with the wine symbol? Look, we've all been covenant breakers. Every covenant has a set of rules that shouldn't be broken. It's what makes it a covenant. We've all broken that covenant, and so we deserve the covenant judgment. And because the covenant partner, God, is God, what we deserve is death, a cup of wrath that we should drink down to the dregs. But he did. He drank it. In your place. He drinks the cup of wrath that we deserve so that we can drink the cup of joy that he deserved. That's Christianity. Edmund Clowney said, in the midst of the joy of the feast, Jesus is sipping the coming sorrow so that we in the midst of this world's sorrow can sip the coming joy. 
That's it. The age of abundance is here, but it's not how we thought it would be. Jesus took the sorrow we deserved and gave us the joy only he can give. That's the sign. That's why this is the first thing he does. You need to know the new covenant is better than any other arrangement we could possibly try to make to get close to God. The new covenant partner, Christ, the king of the new covenant, has more abundance in him for you than you can imagine. So 2,000 years ago, those old legends became true, and Yahweh, the great I Am, walked around Galilean soil, at once both the carpenter's son and the king of joy, whose wagon tracks overflow with bounty, who makes the hills flow with wine. And that abundance is for you if you will receive his suffering in your place. You must. That's the thing about a covenant with God, is it must not be broken. The penalty must be death, otherwise it wouldn't mean anything. What's the point? So Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, comes at the dawning of this age to be the covenant keeper we could not be. And then die in your place, as if he wasn't. And through his cosmic, why have you forsaken me suffering? He brought you and bought you an abundant, full to the brim joy. So there's going to be a good bit of suffering left in this life for us to walk through, friends. It's coming. If you haven't suffered deeply in the last 10 years, you're probably about to. It's absolutely inevitable. But you can sip a joy in the midst of that suffering that no one can take from you. A joy that coexists with suffering in a way the world doesn't understand. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you and see something now of your glory. And as we approach your table now, at your invitation, I ask that you will, through your spirit, prepare our hearts in such a way that when we taste the bread and drink the cup, our hearts are lifted to heaven and we can bathe in those hills flowing with wine because of your goodness and mercy. Amen. Let's just take a moment and prepare your hearts for the table.